You are listening to the Missions History Podcast, brought to you by the International Mission Board, where we remember the past to inspire the future. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Welcome to Missions History Podcast. Today we have a special guest with us, and I'm going to ask my co-host, Scott Peterson. I'm David Brady, by the way. I'm going to ask Scott to introduce our special guest. Thanks, David. Well, today's guest is someone who's been working now for a few years here at the IMB. And uh, if you've ever contacted our archives with a, a question about our history or wanting to do some research, you may have had the opportunity to correspond or talk with Miss Kendall Owens. So, Kendall, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, Kendall, and how you got involved with working in an archive and and uh, just your, your interest and maybe even your hobbies? I graduated with a history degree um, from the University of Southern Mississippi in 2010. Yes. And then I went on and got my master's in library science from UNC. Um, <laughs> I knew that was coming. I was waiting for it. Um, and I have been working at the IMB since 2014, coming up on five years. It has flown by. <laughs> so, Kendall, tell us a little bit about your your um, spiritual background, and um, you're you're not you don't have to be a Baptist to work in archives, but <laughs> right. you are one. But tell us about how you came to know the Lord, and a little bit about your your religious background. Yeah. All right. Um, I have uh, been in Southern Baptist churches since I would say before I was born. Um, I was uh, I grew up in in Sunday school in churches throughout. My dad was Air Force, so I was in a number of churches throughout the Southeast. But um, I was seven when I, it's kind of the the typical church girl story. <laughs> um, but I had through uh, a Sunday school teacher and, you know, the um, influence of my parents over the past seven years. Um, that was when I trusted Christ and was baptized. And, um, so I've, uh, had, and I grew up in missions programs as well. I was always in churches, uh, with whatever used to mission friends, GAs, act teens. And so missions has always been, had loomed large in my consciousness. What church were you in when you came to faith in Christ? I was at St. Andrew's Baptist Church in Panama City, Florida. Okay. That actually, I think, has sustained a good bit of damage in the the storm recently. I I saw them and um, that they had been doing some work down there as they recovered, you know, from their own sure damages. But um, I think we were we were there for two years, so they're not going to remember me. But <laughs> <laughs> but maybe some of our listeners will want to get reacquainted, right? So, Kendall, what is it that you do in archives? I mean, you know, I mean, for all of us, we just kind of have this kind of vague idea of what might happen in an archive. But what are some of the things that you do on a daily basis? On a daily basis. All right. Well, the um, <laughs> the more technical sounding term will be, you know, converting uh, people's files, records into permanent storage, uh, which essentially means scanning those documents to microfilm and the uh so there's a there's a lot of um 
you know, there's some tedium in that, but you get to read through and uh, you learn a lot as you're going through and preserving things for, you know, that day in the future when maybe we can't access if, what, how, how is the best way to phrase that, Scott? <laughs> I, I don't know, but I'm, I'm just wanting to throw a note out there for any of our former personnel who may be listening. Yes, Kendall Cannon does read your files and she gets <laughs> joyous and celebrates what God has done through your life. But I promise you, she will not be sharing any Absolutely. state secrets. Absolutely. And it all, I don't see them until um, a good ways down the road as well. But uh, that is one part of uh, my daily task. But um, we also help with, uh, you know, requests within the IMB if, you know, records need to be um, looked at or transferred, that kind of thing. And then my favorite part is the the historical side where we have the um, artifacts and records all the way back to 1845. And we help uh, do research or provide assistance in doing research for people like David when he's writing a Yay, book. Thank you. Or uh, students doing dissertations or people who say, you know, my great-grandmother was a missionary in China, and what information can you give me about her? And well, I would I would say that Kendall, David, just so you know, has yeah. two specific skills that we rely on heavily in the, the archive. One is her ability to dis, dis, decipher old handwriting. Wow, I uh, needed more help with yeah, her. So, yeah. so for oh, example— in a, another episode, we talked about Sally Holmes and some right. letters that had mm-hmm. been donated. Well, Kendall worked through those letters and created transcripts of those letters and checked some existing transcripts of it. And then her other skill is identification of people in photographs. We can take <laughs> wow. a group photo shot of missionaries and she can figure it out. from the early 1900s in China and she will reference other known photos and will identify the people in there and create a little chart for us so that we know where everybody is standing in the group photos. Well, Kendall, that, I'll tell you something. So I'm going to throw a challenge out All at right. you. All right. So try reading the handwriting of John Quincy Adams Rohr. Okay. Give, give it a shot for me. I probably have, but... Oh, um, man. It, the thing about it is it's not that it's not neat. Yes. It is it is like he wrote with a microscope. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I have no idea how this guy could make it so tiny. And think, the paper doesn't help, I'm oh, sure. It was it was terrible. But anyway, well, those are uh, both amazing abilities. And one of the things that um Kendall, you and I have talked about different things, but you have an interest within all of this, sort of a personal passion of noticing that missionary uh sort of service tends to run in family lives. So kind of just talk, tell us a little bit about what you've noticed uh, looking at that. All right. Well, one of my uh, personal interests that I have been able to pursue (laughs) here in my work uh, is uh, family history research, which um, turns in kind of useful when we have missionaries from the, say the 1800s who resigned from the board and we kind of lost track of them. And so um, it's sort of the same process in tracking them down, of you know, looking at censuses and going to um, genealogical sites and uh, that kind of thing. But as you look into that, you start to see that you can almost 
always find in a family tree the influence either the generation before the generation before that sometimes it takes a little further but it's usually pretty close surprisingly frequently whether it's um uncle who was a pastor or uh you know a grandparent who was a missionary for another organization or you know in another and it's I, when once I started looking for it, yeah. it was amazing how rare it was not to find it, just like written out in the family tree. Yeah, we um, Scott has written about Sally Holmes, and we've actually talked about her uh, on another episode. But she had an aunt, uh, really, Mary, Mary yes. that was a missionary to India. Yes, the with Samuel the LMS, uh, with the Trowin? London missionary. Was- yeah. With the with the London Missionary Society, yes. that was an influence on her. So you you, it's very hard in, to in, find someone India, in India think, with right. the LMS, yeah, and London Missionary Society. So, um, <clears throat> would love for you as you continue to learn more about seeing those family connections. I I I'm, we see that in my own family. <laughs> yes. it's just kind of an amazing thing how it just uh, one in generation influences another, and and this uh, legacy of missionary service continues. And you know that takes us to the topic for today's podcast as well, because Kendall has been doing some research on an early missionary to Mexico. Actually, I should say two early missionaries to Mexico Mm -hmm. who were brothers. Kendall, uh, tell us a little bit about what you're researching and the early missionary John Westrup and his brother, who was a missionary uh, even before him. Yes. Um, now they were the Westrup brothers were actually our first missionaries to Mexico, um, and that's that's not a name you hear that brought up that often. And um, that was the first thing I thought. I was like, how have I never heard of the the first Southern Baptist or Foreign Mission Board Southern Baptist missionary to Mexico? Um, part of it is because neither of them served with us that long, um, and another. It, thing that interested me about them both was that they're actually one of our surprisingly common early missionaries who were not American. They were both born in England and um, they did not transfer as some of our missionaries did from a mission society in the UK. They were, um, they actually immigrated to Mexico as children. With, to Monterey. Yes. And their, their father was a baker and he, had a contract to, he built flour mills and he had a contract to build a flour mill. Um, they're actually in Veracruz first and I think um, later moved to Monterey. But, um, so there's were a they, Were they Protestant believers at that point? Um, the parents were uh, Anglican. They, um, I don't know that they were particularly religious, but they weren't um listen any you know, nonconformist mm-hmm. right. <laughs> roles in, in in England. Um so they were um went with the the state religion when they came to Mexico. Uh this was in let's see. John Westrop was born in 1840 in London and the family moved in around 1852. And uh so he basically grew up in Mexico. He spoke Spanish like somebody who was, uh, you know, native Mexican. And um, he... Is Thomas older? Yes. Thomas was born in 1837. He was three years older. And he, um, Thomas is actually, as far as I can decipher 
probably the reason the way John came to be converted. Um, whether they were brought up in any sort of church tradition in Mexico or not, uh, Thomas actually was baptized into the Baptist church by an, an Irishman who was employed. He was an agent of the American Bible Society. James and, Hickey. Yes, James mm -hmm. Hickey. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> right. And, and tell us about it. In the story of James Hickey, there's this word that when you study early missionary history that you hear over and over again, it's the word coal, coal porter. porter. Yeah. So tell us what was a coal porter? Um, Is this somebody porting coal? <laughs> <laughs> Now, port from, you know, the root is to carry. Uh, now, um, <laughs> I actually don't know the etymology of the word. Now I'm going to look that up. Sorry. But uh, no, it is basically, uh, uh, he's got me started on this I now. know. Now we're going um, down a rabbit trail. <laughs> um, uh, a, a fancy term for somebody who sells Bibles and uh, Christian literature. And... Um, Basically, kind of like your traveling Bible salesman or yes. peddler of some sort. And, and wasn't it when James Hickey first went, it was actually illegal to sell Bibles in Mexico? Really? Yeah. I'm not. Yeah, it was it was actually illegal. This is one of the reasons that it was so clear to us as Baptists that, you know, we, we just couldn't say, oh, wow, these people are, you know, they're Christian. It's because, I mean, they didn't even have a copy. In fact, they were prohibited from having a copy of of, uh, you know, of the, the scriptures on their own. And so they had to smuggle Bibles. Oh, in. Okay. So he, I knew he was in, in around 1862 is when he met Thomas Westrup. Right. Um, in Monterey. Yes. Right. And Thomas Westrup, uh, was baptized and actually ordained by Hickey there. And, um, which was, he was later ordained in a quote unquote official Baptist church in New York, but, okay. uh, cause the, you know, the, I guess legality or appropriateness of his ordination by okay. Hickey was questioned, but, um, he and a few Mexican nationals and Hickey and his wife, I believe, uh, formed what became the first Baptist church of Monterey. And when was that? In 1864, I believe. Okay. And Hickey dies in 66, I think. Right? And Thomas Westrup, took over his role at, or being employed by the American Bible Society until about 1869, 1870, when um, one of the things Thomas had been doing um, in addition to coal porting, <laughs> right, coal porting. was coal. planting churches. I, conjugate that word. <laughs> um, but, but let's back up. She said one of the things he'd been doing in addition to Tra selling Bibles mm -hmm. and tracts was... Was church planting. Which James Hickey did, too. Yes. James Hickey, in fact, organized that first right. church. Yeah. The way into Mexico starts with James Hickey. Mm -hmm. He's a coal porter, but he also... The people that read the Bible trust Christ. He forms mm -hmm. into a church. And Thomas takes over the First Baptist Church of Monterey. Yes. He was pastoring uh, sort of back and forth with a number of... or It seems that Hickey had ordained some of the Mexican nationals as well, because sometimes... Uh, there was a very early transition into national leadership. That was one of the things I noticed uh, pretty immediately. It really jumps out. Right. And it, possibly it could be because there just weren't that many missionaries down there at that right. point. But they also seemed to really um, invest in, in that idea from the beginning. 
We we actually talked to someone who explained the reason for that, and they said that you could not be a foreigner and be a pastor ah. there. It was not it was not permitted. So um, that's why they moved in all of our work very quickly to national leadership. Okay, yeah. So um, we've got Thomas, but where does John come from? Where does John <laughs> Westrup come into the story? Okay, well, um, Thomas, we left. Uh, as an agent of the American Bible Society, as a coal porter, but he left um, around 1870 because uh, he was told that, you know, the ABS is a non-denominational organization. Uh, they didn't want him planting Baptist churches, and so he opted to go the church planting route instead of continuing with them. And at that point, he was, uh, he met with a group from the American Baptist Home Mission Society, New York. This is uh, the Northern Baptist, yes. right? And at that point, uh, there had been, uh, the Foreign Mission Board had had missionary in Brownsville. Well, it was, I guess it was the the Southern Home Mission Board had a missionary in Brownsville who had been doing some work with Mexican, uh, at least Spanish-speaking people, you know, on the border there. But they for various reasons, unrest in Mexico and that sort of thing, they weren't able to con really consider, take up the question of entering Mexico, putting a mission there until around 1870. And the American Baptist Home Mission Society, or as we, we call the Northern Board, uh, picked up work in Mexico, which led Southern Baptists to say, well, okay, we'll, we'll enter Italy instead, you know, not right. to infringe on <laughs> right, 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 and so that's how we entered Italy in 1871 or the beginning of 1871, I believe. Right, 1871. Mm -hmm. Um, and Thomas Western was actually the American Baptist first missionary to Mexico in 1870. Um, by 1874, due to things like the Panic of 1873, the um, donations were falling. They were not able to support Thomas anymore. Uh, so he resigned with them and sort of did his own thing without um, support. But that was the point when the F&B said, okay, they're not in Mexico anymore. You know, there's a door opening for us. And they were really pushed to that by the, the Texas Baptists. A couple of the, um, there's a lot of organizational names in here. <laughs> it's like a, a story of many mission boards. Um the General Baptist Association of Texas and the Baptist State Convention of Texas had um, been working with both Westrip brothers at this point um, and funding them to a certain degree, but they were really wanting the um, the F&B to take their work up. We see that as a kind of a pattern yes. of often with our early missionaries in different places. It was true certainly in Palestine as well, where a state convention or a state mission board was supporting work in a place mm -hmm. and it became uh, maybe untenable for them to continue to provide financial support. And they were looking to the foreign mission board to pick up that support and to, to take on that work. And so I guess that's what happened here. Right now uh, in Texas's case, they actually did continue to pay um, once the, they, the Westerns became employed by the F&B their salaries were, and expenses were still paid um, by the Texas Baptists. But I believe in one of the letters that, you know, we're willing for you to have the, um, I guess, <laughs> prestige is the wrong word, but um, to be able to claim 
this missionary is there to maybe they thought that, you know, that would get more people interested in going to Mexico and sort of, you know, raise the, by making it more of a, a national um, employee. And let me, I'll, I'll eventually answer your question. So <laughs> I didn't know that Thomas ever worked for the FMB. Yes. I, I knew, I knew John, but I didn't know that Thomas actually was ever employed by us. Um, Thomas came after John, actually. Okay. Uh, what we know of John or what what I've been able to learn of him, we know a bit more about Thomas, certainly about his um, r- religious history right. than we do about John. Um, John, by 1878, had, he was married to a Mexican woman named Bernarda Trevino. She, they had six children. Uh, I think one died in infancy, but um, they he was a carpenter by trade. He... And he had his sister was married to an Englishman in, uh, who was a miner in Mexico named William Harvey. Uh, and Harvey invited John to come work as a carpenter for his mine in uh, Muskies. And um, so John did, took his family, moved there. And he was pastoring a church there on the side, or the carpentry may have been on the side, but right, right. Uh, bivocational. Uh, and this was also a church that had been planted by uh, or organized by Hickey. And uh-huh. it had been pastored previously by, I take it back, it was organized by a Mexican man who had been converted by Hickey. Okay. And he started this church in Muskies. He pastored a different church and uh, John filled in and took over this church in Muskies. And that was when the Texas Baptist started working with him and he eventually came over to the board. So what year did John Westrup officially become a foreign mission board missionary? 1880. 1880. So that's when our Southern Baptist work officially yes. begins in Mexico. He was appointed on April 6, 1880. He was being, still being paid by the um, General Baptist Association of Texas. But... Um, yeah, so the Westrips as a unit had kind of been working in Texas for 10 years prior to that, but it wasn't until 1880 that the um, F&B stepped in. So tell us a little bit about um, what happened. It wasn't a long ministry. No, but, it wasn't. But tell us a little bit what we know about those, I guess, months. Right. Um, it's interesting. There's actually a letter written by Thomas in 1881 in which he says he does not even really know exactly what John's work uh, constituted. They, we know that he was uh, he had organized and sort of was pastoring about four churches in north northern Mexico. Uh, I believe in it, months. Or yes. He, yeah. Um, now some of these he may have been already working. sort of yeah, been working with, but. Um, there was de- there was one in Progreso. There was one in Muskies where uh, he lived, and there were a couple of others, but um, small kind of villages all around around each other. And that was kind of the thing. It's like that he had there were Mexican nationals, I believe, sort of in training um, to or filling in the pastorate when he couldn't be there since he was you know darting around between them, but. Um, he had been with F&B officially from April to um, December. He was actually, he had moved his family to Muskies and he and uh, 
Mexican man, another believer named Basilio Flores, were traveling um, to, I believe, no, they had moved to Monterey. He had moved the family to Monterey. He was traveling to Muskies to pick up his salary that had been sent there because the board didn't know he would be moving to Monterey. Um, and on the return, he and the uh, uh, Flores were, uh, from what we was able to be determined afterwards, what they believed to be uh, bandits, possibly uh, Native Americans, uh, killed both men. Uh, and there were no witnesses beyond the people who killed them. And there, so everything we know about it was reconstructed mm-hmm. afterwards. And how it, was that reconstructed? Didn't the, the board send someone yes. down there? Yes. I think officially the board sent uh, W.D. Powell. Okay. But before that, uh, one Thomas Westrup had baptized a man in Texas named William Flor- Flornoy, if, if that's how his name is pronounced. I'm not sure. Uh, he worked in Laredo, and Thomas had asked Flornoy to go to Coahuila and see what he could find out about his brother's death. Um, and Flournoy wrote a very interesting letter back. He, he basically, he went to, he interviewed like the sergeants who had, you know, given statements. He went to the towns and, uh, I have a bit of that letter if you don't want to read anything from it. Uh, he wrote to, this is, let's see. This is who to who. So John was killed December 18th, 1880. This letter is written by Flournoy to Thomas Westrup, John's brother, on March 23rd, 1881. It says, as to the facts relative to the death of brother John O. Westrup, your beloved brother, I believe to be about as follows. It seems that he was returning from Monterey to Santa Rosa de Musquiz with the same two carts that carried his family to Monterey. And on Saturday morning, December 18th, 1880, he started in company with a Mexican man with the intention to reach muskies that night to be with the church on sunday and after traveling six leagues from encinas not being on any road they camped or stopped apparently to make a cup of coffee where they were assaulted and he says ignominiously murdered uh i was informed by very good authority that the sergeant made a statement as follows that he was following the indian trail with his men in a southwest direction when he came upon two dead bodies one an american and the other a mexican man and after little examination, he was convinced that the American was the Protestant minister that preached in Santa Rosa de Musquiz and that where the me- Mexican man's body lay, w- wood was gathered though he was, as though he was making a fire when attacked. And then he describes um, the injuries and I believe there was a disparity between how the two of them were treated. Uh, I believe the um, Flores was shot once and... Um, Wester was shot several times and his body was mutilated. Uh, and there's something about being thrown onto a cactus. I did not find anything about that. Mm-hmm. Except W.D. Powell says that. Right. But, okay. Yeah. 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 That would make so But I mean, he wasn't there, but that's what right, his investigation exactly. Because uh, the apparently the diary. Yes. Was, the, the, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Wait a minute. Yeah, I was going to say that made no sense diary, to anybody but the two of us. What <laughs> diary? And is it in archives? Yeah. <laughs> Have no, you seen no, it? No. no. Um, he, uh, Flournoy mentions that later on. He says that uh, 
let me get to basically they weren't sure the people in the uh, the bodies were brought back to um uh progreso was the nearest town and the people there thought it was probably him but they weren't able to recognize him from the injuries and uh they didn't know for certain until the soldiers returned and gave them pieces of the memoranda book that uh, Flournoy says that I sent you the other day. So Flournoy sent that to Thomas. Um, where it went after that, the family may still have it. I'm not sure. But uh, apparently Powell saw it. <laughs> well, you know, Powell in, in um, his record or his report says that when he read the diary of um, uh, John Westrop, that it was covered in blood. And that that was sort of his call when he saw that. And he just was, it was just a, a very powerful spiritual moment for him that he had been serving in Mexico. Right. I mean, in Texas, in Texas. But, but he, he felt that God was calling him to fill those shoes. Yeah. And Powell was very involved in, in sort of garnering support for the Westrop's work in Mexico while he was, you know, he was one of the reasons the Texas convention had gotten, you know, uh, started supporting them. And, um, now it's, it's interesting because one of the questions that came up at the time of, you know, when they, they saw this, you know, people started wondering, well, some people started suggesting, well, why was, you know, the, this man is a Protestant minister. Was there some sort of, um, hostility towards him that would cause his body to be treated so much worse than, you know, the other man's, uh, Flournoy is interesting. He says the general opinion of the people of these places are, and that he interviewed people around like Progreso and Muskies, that Brother John and the man stopped to graze their horses a while, make a cup of coffee. The Brother John had taken the carbon. There was a, a weapon there, which belonged to the Mexican man to kill a rabbit. Uh, and the shots drew the attention of this um, group of Indians and caused them to come over and when they came on Brother John and the carbon in his hand, he very naturally tried to defend himself and shot one of them because they had seen some blood scattered around down the trail. Um, and that that was the reason his body was mutilated. Uh, others are of the opinion that um, so, some of the Mexicans, which were disguised as Indians, and that was something, another weird thing that came up. Like, how how would they have known that? There's a lot of assumptions that were made that it's not very clear <laughs> how they got to them um, that some of them may have known he was a Protestant preacher and butchered up his body. So through fanaticism and hatred to Protestants, uh, Powell concluded, I know there was a report in, uh, it was actually published in newspapers across the U S in June, I think of 1881 where Powell had said that he concluded that it was banditry and not um, an act of, you know, religious fanaticism or whatever you would want to call it. Um, I think his family always believved that it was some sort of, you know, attack, personal attack. Personal. Mm -hmm. uh, there doesn't seem to be any evidence of that, but there's, you know, I'm sure they, what were you about to say? Well, I, I, no, go ahead, please. No, finish. Go ahead. I'm done. I, I was just going to say, I think please stop. <laughs> you know, it's, it sounds like a lot of speculation about yeah. events and yeah. a lot of reconstruction. But, you know, for me, the significance of the event is not necessarily the motive oh, yeah. of those who murdered him, 
but how God used his death, as David has already mentioned, to to burden W.D. Powell to begin work in Mexico, but also it appears to perhaps yes. motivate Thomas to, Thomas to return. Thomas was—we uh, ta- officially count him as a missionary for, um, I believe, from April 1881 through the end of that year. Now, I would question that looking at some of the correspondence because, as David said, there— um, there was some miscommunication between Thomas Powell and the Southern board and the Northern board. Um, both are uh, Thomas had been talking with the Northern board. They wanted to start a seminary in Monterey, but weren't sure when they would be able to do it. Powell apparently in talking with Thomas heard this said, Oh, I bet our board would do that and wrote to Tupper, the president of the board at the time saying, Let's do this. Here's here's this guy who's going to work for us. And Thomas is like, wait, wait, wait. I might have committed to this other board first. I'm not sure. Uh, Powell convinced him to come to the FMB, um, sort of to take up his brother's mantle. Um, and he had just about decided that when... It's unclear that plans might have fallen through. The board didn't really act quickly enough to, or in the end, he wound up going with the, the Northern board had more of a plan. I guess that fit into, uh, he was very concerned about, you know, what was proper. He's like, I don't want to make a, you know, do anything with this since I've committed to you. But, um, in the end he was with us for a very short time and, Continued the work, just not Powell was <laughs> sort third time's a charm. He stayed, you know, for a long time. But right. and you know what you're describing and sort of this uh northern board, southern board really actually mm. is a dominant feature of Baptist work in Mexico. Really? Because it, the work was always mm-hmm. going to be divided uh, between what would become American Baptist and Southern right. Baptist. And um, that legacy sort of lives on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was true. The other thing is, is whether Westrop was killed by right. uh, Roman Catholic right. fanatics or not, we don't know. But what we do know is that um, religious persecution by Roman Catholics towards Protestants and in particular towards Baptists was very real. And it was, um, there was a sense that uh, we are a Roman Catholic nation and there was not a sense of religious liberty. And um, so there was always, even if it wasn't death, there were always scenes of various kinds of persecution and people being limited Mm -hmm. in in a lot of different ways. And certainly his family felt some sort of pressure that uh, caused him to think it likely or, you know, possible that that had been the cause for his death. Um, But I, uh, I also think it's interesting just in and I've done a lot of <laughs> research recently on our missionaries who have died in active service and you know the majority of them are not these kind of uh you know dramatic martyrdom stories they're they're accidents they're you know incidents like this where it may just have been that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time picked up a gun tried to defend himself and you know just a random occurrence that uh, we, I think, as um, 
as also not having the God's eye view of, you know, the events, I think have a lot a more time, a harder time accepting that or not understanding the reason for, you know, random, what we would think senseless violence, um, as opposed to, we can see a reason behind, you know, a martyrdom if, you know, well, but let's, but, let's remember the 1880s in, in Mexico and in Texas and New Mexico, that area, I mean, they were, it was a lawless place right. in many yeah. ways. And, you know, and one of the things we've kind of mentioned this about Powell and the Westrops, we're seeing Texas come up a lot. And really in our history of Southern Baptists, one of the things that, you know, I mean, Texas becomes what, uh, an independent republic in what? 1836. 36. When does it become a state? 45. 45. So the same year that the Southern Baptist Convention is mm-hmm. formed. Um, but one of the really significant things was when Texas got on board with the missionary movement. Right. And that happened through, to, to, through two places. One, it happened through the Bagbys going to Brazil in the uh, 1870s. And that was huge. That really pulled Texas in. But then the second was this with Mexico, because, I mean, even today, really the heartland of Southern Baptists is Texas, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Um, that area is really where so much missionary support is. And right. so to go back, no matter how or why Westrop was killed, mm-hmm. it served to really foster the missionary movement and to exalt it and to um, to to cause people there who had natural connections with Mexico to begin to see that as a missionary field. To me, it's, it's such a story of God's sovereignty. I mean, all the missionary stories are, but you think about here are these two guys from London who wound up in Mexico because their dad was a, a baker and got a, a job there. And uh, out of you know all the people in Mexico, they met this James Hickey. A coal porter. <laughs> yes, a coal porter. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like they, and certainly Thomas, uh, he and his wife, and um, at, I know he had at least eight children, and his one of his sons himself became a, a pastor. And, I mean, they are very influential in um, Mexican uh, evangelical, not necessarily Baptist, but... Um, that had a really long legacy, even after, you know, they sort of left our, our sphere. Um, Thomas was a hymn writer. He wrote a number of hymns there. In Spanish. Yes. In Spanish. He translated a lot into Spanish, but he also wrote, um, the music and the, the lyrics to a lot in Spanish. Um, Hmm. there's, uh, could you sing one of those? (laughs) I have I have the music for uh, one of them, and I was going to ask. I don't know how how your your Spanish is, but I'll, um, I'll give it a whirl. If you I got can, it, if I can get to it, I have it. It's just hiding from me right now. Florinoy, I thought didn't he actually work in in like Merida in the in the um the Quintana Roo area? Didn't he? I there? Th- from he was. Here, 1880 to 1890. Now, it's, this hymn is called Nuestros Pasos en Camino. Is that like guide our steps? Let's look and see. Wow, if I can read it. Um, Nuestros pasos en camino, bondadoso protector por nosotros siempre mira. Somos gre de nuestro Dios. That was the so, word that threw me off, gre. Yeah, like, yeah, mm-hmm. and that means something, but yeah. I'm not sure why. <laughs> it is kind uh, of, you know, you get that kind of antiquated language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, um, 
Yeah, and he wrote this. Yes. That's Thomas Westrop. Yes. So, Kendall, what are some of the things, as you're thinking about this, what are some of the things that you, uh, questions that you still are trying to dig at and try to understand about the whole Westrop story? Well, I need to, I haven't quite gotten into all the Powell correspondence on this. So, obviously, um, you know more about that, and I came at it from you know this direction. So, I do want to to hear to read his report and find out um, more about how this influenced his uh, decision to pick up and leave the work in Texas because I know he was attached to that, and it it took him a while to to really decide that you know Mexico was where he needed to be. But obviously, like you said, Westrop's death was a big um, influence in that. Yeah. One thing people can do if uh, any of our listeners are familiar with archive.org, there is a free book there. Um, It's called Modern Baptist Heroes and Martyrs, and it has a chapter on John Westrup, which is really, it's written by W.D. Powell. Oh, okay. And so that's where you'll hear his report, and anybody who's listening can go there and download that as well. And Kendall, if uh, I, I think you were trying to track down an old newsletter uh, from a church or a sort of report that yes, circulated. Well, um, in Tupper's correspondence with O.C. Pope, who was the um, editor of the ba- Texas Baptist Herald at the time, uh, Pope mentioned, Pope was the one who first reported the death to the board, said, you know, we've received this telegram saying that he's been killed. Um and he said, I've written to the consular agent, you know, there in several different places uh, to for details. And I'll let you know what I find. And then a later letter, he says, you'll have seen the copy of the consular report that was published in the Herald and also this other one that I'm sending you. Well, we don't have that now. <laughs> so if my friend Alan Lefevre, who is the director <laughs> of the Texas Baptist Historical Society, is listening to this, Alan, could you help us out? Could you f- track down that issue of the Texas Baptist Herald? And, and, and Kendall, one thing, um, this is, if if you were looking at the Westrop story, is there any kind of parting lesson that you'd like to uh, to share with us? Anything that you've been struck by in this story? Well, if I if I can reference <laughs> something from from your book that I know you've already done an F episode on, and talking about the Roars and Sarah Roar, and um, how you know she drowned in a shipwreck before she even reached the field, and again that question we look at that and say, well, what a waste! This guy was only out there for you know seven eight months. Um, what did he or what? We we really want to say, what was God thinking? I right, would have done right. that differently. Right. Um, but you, we don't get to see that picture mm-hmm. as we're walking through it. Yes. We see it later. And you think about it. Here we are all these years later, and we're still being challenged by the life of the Westrops, yeah. by Thomas and John. And so they may have been a seed that fell into the ground. Um, but they are bearing fruit. Kendall, thank you for being our guest. Thank you for having on me. Missions History me Podcast. <laughs> talk and, and talk and talk. No, no. We're, and we're grateful. We keep uh, researching uh, about John. I think there's more information out there to be found. Uh, thank you for what you do for us as Southern Baptists, what you do for our writers, researchers like me. Appreciate uh, that service. It's a great blessing to us. And um, I just pray you just stick with this, and one of these days you're going to know more about this than all of us combined. 
Well, and um, thank you. Thank you. And uh, if anybody ever wants to just come talk missions history, I'm, I'm in the archive. Come find and, me. And if any of the Westrop's descendants out there have a have that journal, boy, that, let oh. us know about it. <laughs> yeah, let us know. That would be that would be a great great thing. So, Kendall, thank you for being our guest on this episode of Missions History Podcast, Remembering the Past to Inspire the Future. I'm David Brady. And I'm Scott Peterson. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Missions History Podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And check out more great content like this at imb.org.